0: Yeah. Hey.
1: Come on. Welcome to the Kelly Patrick Show. Thank you so much for tuning in. In today's episode, I am joined by Spike Cohen. Spike is one of the guys who articulates the message of liberty. Arguably as, as, as good as anyone on, on the planet, in my opinion. Really appreciate Spike coming on. If you're a fan of The Kelly Patrick Show and you want to support the show in any way, I don't have a Patreon. If you wanted, you could leave me a, a, a nice review on iTunes um, or you know give me some positive feedback on social media. That'd be great. But the best way to support me and my podcast is to send some health insurance referrals my way. Of course, I'm based here in Louisville, Kentucky. I do a lot of business in the state of Kentucky, but also in Florida. I'm actually licensed in 12 states across the country. Anyone who needs help with health insurance, anywhere in the United States, please contact me. If you're a part of the Liberty community and you live in, I don't know, New Hampshire, or you're in California, it doesn't matter where. If you have questions about health insurance, I may be able to make a sale, which would earn me a commission, which would be great. But if not, I will give you the best advice possible. I promise you that. So send me some health insurance referrals. The details of the sponsors for the show are as follows. life insurance, and long-term care. If you want to support the podcast, please send me some referrals. 502-386-0978. Welcome to the Kelly Patrick Show. Thank you so much for tuning in. In today's episode, I am joined by returning guest. I have Spike Cohen. Spike, how are you today? I'm doing great, man. Thanks for having me on. Really appreciate you coming back on the show. You are always an engaging guest, and that's actually going to lead me into my first question for you, Spike. I've been listening to some of your recent uh, podcast interviews and episodes you've been on, including the um, what is it, the Patrick Bet David episode you did with Larry Sharp and Dave Smith. And Mm -hmm. there was a couple other people on there, but for the most part, it was a libertarian episode. I also recently listened to your episode you did. I think it was, was it just last week with Reed Coverdale, the naturalist capitalist?
0: Yes. Yeah, Uh, that was last week that I was on Reed's show again. And
1: you are always so engaging. You do a great job of articulating your personal story and your background and tying it into libertarian principles. I wouldn't say, Spike, you necessarily um are talking about anything that's different than the 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 libertarian uh type ideology, smaller government, more freedom, less regulation, things right. like that. But you do a very good job mm-hmm. at at using your words to um make it to make sense to the masses. I so my question to you Spike is how did you get to this point to where where that is your specialty? Would you agree that's your specialty and How important is that as a specialty
0: for someone in your shoes? So uh, that's an excellent question. I would say that uh, I sort of have two specialties that, you know, dovetail well together. Uh, They served me well uh, in the business world and they they appear at least so far to be serving me well in the political world. And those are uh, effective messaging and communication and uh, effective uh, organization and uh, organization leadership and networking and all of that. And honestly, I don't really see, I mean, those are technically two different types of specialties, but really I'm applying the same skill sets to be able to accomplish both of those. Um, The same way that you uh, can get someone to um, either accept or at least listen to your message and bring people into an, an effective message or an effective strategy is the exact same way that you inspire people Uh, And are able to lead them uh, to be able to do great things in an organization, whether it's a business or a political organization or a campaign or whatever else. It's really the same things, and and if you're applying it consistently, it's not just the message. It's every way that you conduct yourself in doing whatever that uh, that initiative or that effort is. Um, And so that's that's you know what what I learned very early on when I started my first company and my teams. Uh, It has continued continued serving me, me well all the way through my 20s and 30s with business. Uh, and then when I decided to retire and go full time into uh, you know political activism and, and messaging and uh, campaigning and everything that I've been doing, uh, it has served me well there. And I, I think it is crucial. You know, politics, especially, is about organizing people behind a common cause uh, and then uh, effectively getting them out to be able to accomplish that common cause. Whether we're talking a campaign, whether we're talking about uh, you know a p- political initiatives like what we've been doing through. My new organization, You Are the Power, where we are finding uh, hot button local issues and local communities that people need help with and helping them to organize and actually get their city council or county council, zoning board, school board, whatever, to listen to them. Uh, and then, uh, you know, effectively running candidates as well. It, it's all the same thing. And you, you absolutely need to be able to inspire people to communicate to them, to empathize with them, to meet them where they are uh, and the, to take them on the journey to, to be able to fix it.
1: Spike, from my perspective, someone uh, such as yourself who specializes in branding liberty and marketing liberty to the masses uh, is twofold in a lot of ways. Okay. One of the ways that you do a great job of spreading the good word of liberty is on the national level. Doing, I know, you know, my podcast may not be the biggest show in the world, uh, but you do a lot of different podcasts. Uh, some of them, you know, middle of the road, as far as audience, some of them, the biggest, you know, bigger podcasts in the entire world. Um, yep. And so you 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 spread the good word of, of liberty on a national and even international level. You do a great job at that. But as you mentioned with your new organization, you also specialize in um, influencing people to take action on the local level and... To impact whether it's city council in their small city, you know, I live here in Louisville, Kentucky, it may be more difficult to get involved, uh, you know, maybe on a city council level, um, somewhere such as uh, Louisville, Kentucky. But I'm sure to a degree, it's it's possible. But if someone maybe lives in a smaller town, um, you know, there's some opportunities. Of course, we've seen the people up in New Hampshire um, who, who do great work in the Free State Project on the local mm-hmm. level. And they really on a grassroots initiative level, they impact Um, their local community that way. Would you agree with my description that it's about, in in some ways, two separate levels? I was happy I voted for you and Joe Jorgensen on the presidential ticket this past presidential election. That would be the national level. But then you also specialize in the local community, grassroots level.
0: Yeah, absolutely. In fact, I think the last time I was on your show, we talked about the need. Uh, I hadn't launched You or the Power yet officially, but we talked about uh, the initiatives that I had been working on at the local level and also the need to work locally. Our movement is still very small. Our ideas make sense to people, but they haven't heard of us and they haven't heard of our, they haven't heard that our ideas are libertarian ideas. And we have, they haven't heard the, you know, philosophical underpinnings behind why our ideas work that, you know, people do best when they're most free, that non-aggression and common respect for human beings and their property and their rights uh, is the best way for us to function as individuals, as communities, and as a society. The problem is you can't reach them philosophically. You have to reach them where it matters. You have to reach them where it matters to them and where it matters to them is how it's going to help them. You know, people that uh, have to figure out how to put food on the table, have to figure out, you know, how they're going to be able to get their kids through college, have to figure out something as simple as, you know, if you're in a city uh, that your car is, you know, we, we, we often as libertarians, we may not think about this in the abstract, but we certainly think about it in our own personal life. If you live in a community where the roads are so terrible, here I am a libertarian talking about roads, but where the roads are so terrible that you're actually getting damage to your car just by driving around on a daily basis. And you know, you, your uh, car taxes go through the roof, your property taxes are through the roof, or if you don't own your property, your rent keeps going up you know, it seems like you're paying plenty uh, to be able to have good roads, but your roads are terrible. That's probably one of your number one things that you're talking about, which is why when libertarians talk about our ideas and someone says, well, who's going to fix the roads? And we get angry at them for asking that. I think, no, here's a chance for us to actually answer the question because we have the best answers for infrastructure and everything else for that matter. And the best way to demonstrate that is to show them. We can talk about it all day long. But if you actually show up in their local communities and find things as simple as uh, you know a, a city council that's trying to steal a nursing home so that they can build a a parking lot, um, or you know uh, a a zoning board that's stopping an elderly lady from being able to use an RV on her property while her home that got burnt down to the ground is being rebuilt, or any number of issues like this, when you show them that there is a way, not only that they aren't alone in this, that the rest of us are sick of this nonsense too, but that they aren't powerless to stop it and that you can actually organize, we can work together online and in person to actually fix these problems. And then we do actually fix these problems. Not only do they see how libertarianism works, but they see that it wins. And that's another big problem we've had, Kelly. Even if people agree with us, the vast majority of self-identified libertarians do not vote for libertarians. And I don't just mean the libertarian party. They don't vote for libertarian candidates period because they think that as even as themselves describing themselves as libertarians, they don't think that libertarianism is a winning thing to run on. We have to change that. not just change that by winning, but change that by changing the narrative around that by winning. and and I think the best way for us to do that is locally. and frankly, you know, we, we talk about ending the fed and ending the wars overseas. We have to show that we can stop a corrupt city council before we can take on the military industrial complex. It's just as simple as that. So yeah, I, I we definitely need the good national messaging. I do national uh, TV and radio. I do international TV. I do podcasts from, from this and any smaller podcasts than this and bigger podcasts than this. I'll talk to anyone and, and you know, our audience is large and small in person. Uh, But we need to do the local work or we're not going to get anywhere. And that's what we're doing with you or the power.
1: You touched on a couple interesting things there, Spike. One of them is people who identify themselves as libertarian. Oftentimes, maybe they would also describe themselves as being an anarchist. And or, you know, maybe anarcho-capitalist, whatever description you want to have. Inherently, a lot of times those types of people don't vote at all. Do you see that as an obstacle? Someone who's anti-government, it's almost like a a, a double-edged sword. Yeah, it's great. You believe the government is evil, but now we need you to vote for
0: a better version of the government.
1: Is that almost like an uphill battle for people such as yourself?
0: It's a battle I don't really try to fight too often. Here's how I handle that. First of all, I am an anarcho-capitalist, so I just full disclosure, I uh, believe that the best society is one that functions voluntarily and through a free market. I don't know if that's possible to achieve or sustainable, but I believe from the standpoint of what is both consequentially the best and morally the best, I think that that's the best way forward. Now, with that said, we're nowhere near that, and we have a lot of reforms we have to make. Uh, we also have to show li- people that Liberty works. Like if we, if I snapped my finger and made all government go away right now, the vast majority of people would turn around, look at me, say, what the hell did you just do? And they would immediately work to just start creating a new government, which would probably be worse than the one I just got rid of. So speaking to your question on other anarchists, ones who don't vote, my thing is this, if someone doesn't want to vote because of, you know, their own moral reasons of not wanting to, uh, use their proxy as a vote to enforce their will against others. I really don't fight that too much because honestly, if our worst problem is a bunch of people that want to leave everyone else alone, that's actually what we're trying to get. Um, now here's what I will say to people who are even on the fence about it. Voting is violence. It is proxy violence. It is me putting on a sheet of paper that I want this to happen. And I want the state to be the one to enforce it you can use that proxy violence of your vote defensively violence is acceptable. If it is defensive violence, you know, uh, 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 shooting a home invader is violence, but it's defensive violence in the same token. If you are voting for a candidate who is consistently saying and consistently uh, going to, if they get elected, reduce and scale down government and, and get government out of your life more, that is a defensive vote. And I'm not talking about some little marginal change to the tax code. I mean, you know, actual, principled, liberty-minded people who want to go in there and completely eliminate entire aspects of government being encroaching on your life. That is a defensive vote. Uh, Voting against a tax increase is a defensive vote. Voting in favor of decriminalizing cannabis or allowing for medical cannabis or something like that, that is a defensive vote. That is a defensive use of that proxy violence that is the vote. So that's how I, you know, uh, that's how I justify what I do, both on the political sphere and in voting. Uh, but if there are people out there that don't agree with it, and they'd rather just you know leave alone and be left alone, and and you know work on voluntary solutions outside of the state, good. That needs to happen too.
1: Now, Spike, you have been a full-time
0: political activist since 2017, correct? Uh, yeah. So I actually in 2017, uh, 2016, I retired uh, from my businesses uh, it it fully culminated at the end of, at the beginning of 2017, I took a few months off after that, uh, mostly because I had been diagnosed with MS and I was having to kind of relive how to live my life healthfully. But towards the end of 2017, going into 2018 is when I got into political activism. That's why like when people say, I didn't even know you existed, you know, three, four years ago, that that's because very few people (laughs) knew I existed three, four years ago. If you weren't in the, the, you know, the, the, Uh, uh, you know, in the circles I was in, in in the business world, or uh, honestly, the biggest community of people that knew me was in the Latin dance world because my wife and I are avid salsa dancers, but no one had really heard of me outside of like in the political sphere in any real way prior to like the end of 2017, beginning of 2018.
1: I got to make sure I don't get too sidetracked, but you guys do salsa dancing. My wife, you, you met Yanni, my wife. Yes. Yeah. Um, yep. And occasionally we get out and we go to like a, you know ten dollars for a salsa lesson. I yep, yep. am very was born with two left feet. Whatever jokes <laughs> you know I want to throw in there, um, but yeah. I've gotten to where I can do a little bit of bachata. Oh, there you go. That's good. That's pretty minimal, yeah, right? That's kind of kind of like a, a relatively easy step toward that
0: direction. The basic step is right, and it's not like. Salsa can be, especially if you don't have, you know, the, the intuitive coordination, that's interesting. Cause you do UFC, but have yeah. a hard time with the, or not UFC, you do MMA, but have a hard time with the dancing. It's funny. Yeah. Whereas I'd get, you know, my ass kicked. Uh, but, um, that's but, um, yeah, no, bachata is a, uh, a bachata. I, I would say bachata and Merengue. Uh, the basic steps are kind of the two easiest one. It's also a great dance. If you're, you know, if you, you know, you're in a relationship, you, you have to get to have a nice romantic dance. I like bachata. I think salsa is my favorite, but yeah, that's definitely a good one to start with.
1: How did you guys get into salsa dancing?
0: Uh, So in uh, the short answer is my then girlfriend, uh, who is now my wife, said, I'd like to get into salsa dancing. I said, well, then so do I. (laughs) She asked if I would want to try it out with her and I said, sure. And so we, uh, we went to some salsa lessons. We both really liked it. We got into the, you know, going out to the socials and stuff like that, started traveling around doing it. Um, and we're like we're actually pretty good. I mean, we could probably like win an amateur competition. Um, we're certainly not pro level, but like we're we're actually pretty good salsa dance. How often do you, and, pra- and you practice? And bachata and merengue them. yes, how often? Uh, honestly, not as much as we used to. We've been doing it for uh, gosh what 14 years now. Um, but um, but yeah, we don't practice as often as we used to. But like uh, it turns out, like pretty much anywhere you go, you can just ask a DJ if they'll play a salsa or a song or two, and they will. Uh, so like even at, at, when we were in Vegas a couple of weeks ago for freedom fest, uh, one of the DJs at one of the clubs in the casino there at the Mirage, he played salsa at the end of the night. So around two, three in the morning, we danced salsa for about an hour or so. Uh, while some of the other freedom fest people got to watch. So, uh, yeah, we, we find little, uh, fun times to do it here and there. Uh, it's also become a, a tradition at, uh, the, uh, the libertarian national convention. They will have like a salsa set that they play so Tasha and I can dance. Um, so we don't practice like as much as we used to, but we still get some dancing in here and there. I
1: love it. Uh, once again, my interview style, I bounce all over the place. So I'm going to try to tie this <laughs> back into what I was asking before. Um, 2016, yes. then 2017, you transitioned toward being really a full-time political activist, which is where you're at yeah. now. Uh, more recently, and you said it's since our last episode we recorded together, your website mm-hmm. and your organization you are the power i'm on it now you go to SpikeCohen.com. Um, you are the power it has you know uh, your your schedule you g- it has all sorts of different um, tabs and information so, so, here so, what is you are the power
0: Okay. So, uh, Spike is my, my, just sort of my personal page that has my schedule and a contact form and stuff like that. But if you go to youarethepower.net, that is the actual website for the organization. You are the power. Uh, the short answer on you are the power is we do localized grassroots activism at the, at the, I mean, when I say local, I mean, city council, county council, school boards, zoning boards, uh, we are, we, there are some statewide things that we inv- are involved in, but we are right now trying to stay hyper-focused intentionally at the local level, because what we're seeing is that there are, are these issues across the country at the local level. And it's different from city to city. It's something really specific to that area where people, there's already a consensus from the people in that area that this is wrong, that whatever's happening is bad and that the people that are in charge are doing the wrong thing. And there's a consensus that the solution to it, is a libertarian solution. They don't know it's necessarily that it's a libertarian solution, but whatever it is that they want to happen is what a libertarian would do if they were in the, what libertarians would do if they're in that office. And again, I'm not just saying libertarian party, I'm saying, you know, libertarian from a philosophical standpoint, they would do what these people are demanding. So we already have a base of support and they don't even know we exist yet. What they don't have is they don't have the organization ability. They don't know how to organize effectively to get that thing to happen. And they feel powerless to stop it, so they just kind of, you know, begrudgingly deal with it. Well, then we get involved when we find out about stuff. We uh, find out about these things when our activists find out about it. We immediately start uh, organizing online to basically—I like to call it cyberbullying—even though technically we don't bully them, but we uh, we basically put that local government on notice on all of their social media. We have their phone flo- phone lines flooded with phone calls from, uh, concerned citizens. Uh, we hit up their emails to tell them what it is we want them to do. Uh, and then while we're doing that, we organize with the local people there, including local activists with you or the power, uh, to set up in-person events where we have these really fun, family-friendly rallies that people come out to where we call for whatever the thing is that we're pushing for in that area. And then we have it happen right before the next council meeting or board meeting or whatever it is. And we show up there, And, uh, they, they show up there and say, here's what we want. So those people on that council or board or whatever it is, uh, they see that whether it's online or in their phone calls or in their, on their email or even at their board meetings, that there are a bunch of people telling them they want this thing to happen. Uh, so far we've had a 70% success rate, 70% of the time we have accomplished our goals, which is, I mean, considering we just launched in May and have been doing this as a proof of concept for about a year now, that's insane that we already have a 70% success rate. The next step is that now that we've reached that point, uh, where we have a 70% success rate, now that we've officially launched and, you know, we're, we're formalizing this and getting a full-time staff and everything else. Now that, you know, with that 30% of the time where they dig in their heels and won't do the right thing, that's now an opportunity for local people there to run as candidates against and replace those council board members, whatever they are, and do the thing that everyone's wanting them to do, uh, actually do the right thing. Uh, it, and at that point, there's already a base of support, a multi-partisan base of support. Cause this is not along party lines. This is, this is based on the idea, not a party. Um, and they also have a, uh, you know, they, they have a, a base of support and they also, um, have a winning platform, which is whatever that thing is. You know, you can often win a local race just on one issue that is a hot button issue for everyone. Um so you know we just started in on that next step of doing that. Uh the goal is to get as close to 100% success rate as possible and the long term goal is bring people into the movement one issue at a time, show them that they have way more power than they thought they did, give them that feeling of empowerment to be able to do it. Uh, as we're growing, have more and more people learn how to do this organizational ability so that we can have, you know, more of this, have dozens and hundreds of events like this happening at the same time and ultimately grow the Liberty movement from the grassroots up. That's where it needs to grow.
1: Now I am going to tie together a couple different things, but I heard, um, you and Reed, during your episode, discussing the difference between, I think you're 40 years old and when you grew up, you didn't have, I'm thir- I'll be 39 later this month, so I'm about the same age as okay. you. We grew up without yeah, yeah. having, you know, uh, Facebook and Twitter and everything like that, at least when we were kids. Um, yeah. And so uh, uh, technology has really changed things. Uh, my friend Hector, who's a 50 55-year-old guy uh, told me just the other day, very successful businessman. He said to me, Kelly, if you ever hear someone say, I wish I was born in the 1800s or something, he said to me, (laughs) Kelly, you got to look him in the eye and say, what the hell are you thinking? Okay. So to tie that into the strategy that you're talking about here, um, you jokingly said you use internet bullying. And I know you're... Uh, you know, you're not being really malicious with that and I don't ever see no, 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 really we don't, yeah. Yeah.
0: and I call it bullying because basically we call them out. We say, Hey, why are you doing this? Now I'm very polite and I say hi and thank you and please. And so forth. But I, you know, the point is I, the reason I call it bullying is because we, we basically swarm on them. Like this will be a city council that, you know, they'll put up a post that'll say, Oh, you know, uh, come to our next meeting and it, it'll get like two likes. One of them is probably one of the council members, maybe a few comments. If there's like, you know, some issue that's going on, they might get a few comments. Suddenly they're getting hundreds or thousands of comments, including hundreds of comments from their constituents saying, you know, we need to fix this. What's going on here? What's happening? And, and, you know, you need to do X, whatever X is, you need to do this thing. And, uh, you know, they very often respond by deleting their social media because they don't know how to respond and they're legally not allowed to delete our comments. Uh, that's, that's, there's multiple court cases. That's a, a, a first amendment protected. You can't, the government can't delete your attempts to try to reach out to them. So, uh, they often delete their accounts hoping it goes away. Well, we've got their phone numbers so now we have people calling them and we say respectfully, we do not like, you know, I, I lovingly call it bullying, but we aren't bullying. Respectfully contact them and say, we need to get this fixed, whatever the thing is. Right. And, uh, and here are their emails and you can reach them that way. And so now they're seeing on their phone calls and their emails that, you know, they're, they're going to get that blown up then, you know, probably in the biggest shock, dozens or sometimes hundreds of people, almost most of whom are their constituents show up at their next council meeting, demanding that thing. And very often there have been times I'd say, I don't know the exact percentage, but a good percentage of the time, uh, we don't even have to show up in person. Just the online and the phone calls and all of that is enough to, to get them to, to, to do what it is we were calling for them to do, uh, which makes people feel incredibly empowered because they often didn't even have to leave their couch and were able to you know, get their government to, to buckle under to the pressure. And that's, uh, you know, that's really powerful stuff that, I mean, forget the 1800s, you couldn't have done that in the 1990s. Like it's, it is incredible what has been able to, or even the early 2000s, it would have been tough. It has been incredible. Social media. We talk a lot about all the problems with social media, right? Like, and there there are certainly many of them, uh, especially when it comes to you know uh, the fact that they're built to be addictive because we are the product. The, The consumer is actually the advertisers. We're the product, and so they have to keep us on there as much as possible. Which means they gain these things to be addictive, which then leads to certain behavior patterns where you're seeking. Constant approval in the forms of likes and, and hearts and reacts and, and, and comments, supportive comments and shares and quote tweets and all that stuff. And, and what ends up happening is, uh, you know, it, it changes people's kind of hardwiring on, on how they interact with each other. And there's a lot of negatives to that. But there's also the positive that you can reach anyone right now. And, and we've been using that. You know, we can sit here and lament the problems with social media. I've chosen to look at a very big positive which is that from a civic engagement standpoint with the right organization, you can have tens of thousands of people across the country working together with much larger groups of hundreds of thousands or even one day millions of locals to accomplish hundreds of things all at the same time in cities across the country. And so what becomes a hype, what's interesting about you or the power is we are at this at both times, hyper local, you know, small city councils, county councils, School boards and so forth. But at the same time, we're national. The stories and the things that we're doing, I've, I'm on national TV talking about this stuff. And so it, it kind of works both ways. It actually feeds up directly as a national story of what we're being able to do at the local level. So all of that exists because of the technology that we have now. The, the ability to be able to do it in the first place is because of the technology that exists right now. Uh, the fact that we're able to talk about this right now on, on, on our basic internet connections, something that, you know, 10, 15 years ago was thinkable, but not possible. And 20, 30 years ago was unthinkable. Uh, that's because of the technology. And I'll say also from a personal standpoint, if I had been born in the 1800s, I'd probably already be dead by now because I have MS and, uh, I certainly would be in a, in a wheelchair or actually I don't, did they have wheelchairs in the 1800s? I probably would have been, you know, uh, uh, carried around or, or trying to walk on crutches or something. Or just in a you know a, an invalid in a deathbed or something, I'd probably more than likely be dead. Uh, but thanks to both medical technology advancements and the scientific knowledge we have about you know lifestyles and wellness changes, and even just what MS even is in the first place, because they didn't even really know what it was back then, I'm able to live a very healthy life as a result of that. So no, I'm I'm definitely not one of these. I want to live back in the you know back in the olden times type of person. I'm I'm happy to live in the modern age, and uh, but. I choose to accentuate the positives of our techno- technological advancements and try to, uh, you know, adjust personally to the, the the bad stuff that can come from it.
1: When considering this conversation in the context of us both identifying as libertarian, uh, very fascinating um, my friend Hector made the point, and you seemingly agree with with him that hey, this is a great time to be alive. Not only for medical yeah, advancements, but social mm-hmm. media, everything like that. Um, today, we can at least point out when someone, let's say it's the president of the United States or on the local level. You know, we've all seen a neighborhood mm-hmm. or a, a small city uh, Facebook police department. Uh, they post on their Facebook page, "Look what we got," and then they have like six little bags of marijuana. Okay. <laughs> and, 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 and they're just so disconnected from reality that, you yeah. know, 20, 30 years ago, they would all literally just be like, yeah, we did it. High five in each other. Now they, they, they post it seemingly bragging about it and you know, somebody yep. has to read the comments. Inevitably, they do. Spike Cohen, you end up in a lot of those comment sections. Um,
0: but there's a <laughs> lot of,
1: um, you know, uh, um, what do they say? Sun, sunlight is the best disinfectant so it's
0: it's instead of
1: being what they would say i guess is black-pilled or negative uh pessimistic about the current state of everything when it comes to the political climate i think there's actually a lot of and i'm not just saying this to to be you know um cheery or optimistic i think there is actually a lot of reason to
0: be optimistic uh even politically every it, it, I see nothing but white pill. I mean, yes, I see the problems with technology, but problems exist with any everything. There's there is no utopian society or solution to anything, right? Like everything has a downside. But if you think about the fact that we are able to communicate in full HD in real time with almost anyone on Earth for the equivalent of pennies, basically, and that most people. Can do this now, and that an increasing number of people can do this right now, and that the economy of scale is making it cheaper and cheaper to do it better and better right now, and and with each coming day, I, I see nothing but uh, if we harness it correctly, I see nothing but uh, I shouldn't say I see nothing but because there's obviously downsides to it. There's greater, greater potential for centralized government control, but the reality is we have the potential to be able to create our solutions as well and to communicate with each other. And if you look, Kelly, if you look at any time that there's been massive amounts of revolts and revolutions and major changes that led to individuals having this much more autonomy, this much more freedom, this much more uh, you know, personal accountability and responsibility. It always coincided with a major game changer in the ability to spread information, the printing press, a uh, uh, print, uh, newsprint, um, radio, TV. If you look at these eras, As soon as there was information was able to be spread more easily and quickly, you suddenly had more people going, wait a damn second. There's a problem here because they were able to actually communicate with other people, get some feedback and realize, Wait, no, I was right. There is a problem here and we have a way to communicate with each other to be able to, uh, to be able to do something about it. Um, you know, I, a lot of people joke that the founding fathers were the original mean Lords, right? They were sharing political cartoons. They were going around, you know, sub, uh, subversively sharing political cartoons, uh, you know, uh, mocking and lampooning the system that the, the, the arrangement that they were in with the colonies and with the, the uh, British rule. And it led to an increasingly popular discontent among the, the, the people that they were sharing it with. Uh, and that was as a direct result of you know, the, the technology at the time of being able to share things. Well, anyone can make memes now on their phone while they're driving. You shouldn't do that, but you, I've done it a couple of times. And you, like, you literally can change people's minds on the fly. A lot of the times that you're seeing me hyper post on social media because, and it's like 1230 in the morning, it's because I'm on a red-eye flight. And because my phone plan comes with free internet and texting when I'm flying, I'm literally flying in the air, air dropping a uh, uh, libertarian agitprop prop for the world to see. Like all I see is upside when it comes to that. And there are, there are, again, I shouldn't say all I see, all I see, I see way more upside to this than I see downside, but it relies on us using age old techniques when it comes to making interpersonal connections with other human beings and organizing together. That's the stuff that never really changes. All that changes is the technology that we use to deal with.
1: Very fascinating. Of course, my wife, Yanni's from Cuba. We watch a lot of movies, anything we can get our hands on about the Cuban revolution. And while we're having this conversation, one in particular came to mind. I can't remember what the name of it was, but I was watching it with Spanish subtitles into English. But there was an older guy in the 70s, okay, in Cuba, and he would sneak away, and he had a radio that was illegal, okay, and he would listen yeah. to anti, uh, anti-revolution radio, okay, and he yeah. would have, even have some of the local kids would come over to his house, and they would all get together and listen to this uh, radio station that was completely illegal. He ended up getting caught and, of course, put into jail, but how fascinating is it to think the importance of simply access to, you know, media or other people's words and things like that and and how far it has come over
0: time. Absolutely. And it's specific to Cuba. You're seeing more and more revolts. They start as protests and riots and they quickly become revolts. And almost all of that is being driven by Cuban exposure to social media and them seeing that what they've been told about where it, what it, you know, they're, they're told the propaganda in Cuba is, well, actually you live way better than these other people do. It's terrible over there. Right. And so they get this propaganda that it's actually, this is the best thing going. And a lot of Cubans are like, I don't know if that's true, especially when they see the tourists coming in and they're like, these people are really, really, really rich. And they're like, yeah, yeah. But they're like the super wealthy people. Everyone else is falling apart. Like the the whole, the, the capitalist society is falling apart. And they go, Okay. And then, and then, but then they'll watch this stuff on social media and see, no, everyday Americans are living way better than they are. And no, we're not starving. We're doing okay. We have our issues, but you know, things are going well. I'm sure many times they see what Americans complain about and think, what are you complaining about? And that leads to people saying, I want something better. And then being able to communicate effectively and build networks from online makes it easier for them to be able to do. it. I believe that when uh, Cuba is free, it's going to happen because a bunch of young people with little to nothing to lose will have the technological ability to be able to communicate with each other in an effective way and organize a big enough swarm that makes it functionally impossible for the Cuban government to stop them. And that that may not be the actual moment of the you know, official regime change or whatever, but it'll be the day that the the regime starts to no longer truly exist from an enforcement mechanism from an enforcement standpoint. And it's, it's possible in some ways that's already started. Um, it, it certainly has become harder and harder for them to be able to do it. And they have to be more and more brutal to stop these larger and larger crowds, which is causing even more and more discontent among the general public. And you can't, you can't hold a, a society together, by threatening everyone at once, you can only do it with small pockets. So the bigger that pocket gets, the harder it becomes, and I think that will end up being largely driven, uh, or the the ability to be able to do it, will be driven by the technological advances. I, I see uh, a far more upside than downside when it comes to that. I, I am fully aware of all the different problems with you know having more technological uh, um, reliance, and also you know the potential for centralized control. Uh, and also specifically how social media rewires people's brains. But the fact is that there's, we can, we can learn to still live healthy lives while also harnessing social media to be able to do what we needed to do.
1: I love it. Great stuff. Uh, Spike, a couple of the um, recent. Okay. So I growing up was always kind of rebellious and kind of like you described yourself on the Reed Coverdale podcast recently. I also was <laughs> it naturally kind of an anarchist. If a teacher told me what to do, he was uh, a fat gym teacher was telling me I needed to run more laps. I'd be thinking in myself thinking in my head, like what the fuck? How- who is this guy? You know, just kind of a general distrust of
0: authority. It's working for him, right? Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. I'm
1: like, what? Who? who gave this guy this job? I mean, what is this? So I'm not saying that I've always been an anarcho-capitalist or a libertarian, more so it's been since the coronavirus that had to wake me up to where I'm now radicalized. okay. Uh, But a lot of the listeners of the Kelly Patrick Show are not as familiar with the libertarian world as I am, and certainly not as Mm -hmm. much so as you are. So if you could give a summary of what has happened, because you're one of the few guys who has maintained a prominent role in the National Libertarian Party prior to the 2020 election, and then all the way up until Mm -hmm. today, if anything, you're You personally, you know, your stock within the party has certainly grown as of late. But when it comes to the Mises Caucus takeover, could you describe to the listeners what was it? What happened?
0: Sure. So the Mises Caucus, there are these various caucuses within the party. And a caucus is basically a faction within the party. Um, They're libertarian, just like the other caucuses are libertarian. uh, But they have differences. The differences are less on policy. Uh, because we all pretty much are the same when it comes to policy. We're all libertarians. Uh, We have some minor disagreements there, but the bigger disagreements are, well, what's the best way forward? Strategy and messaging and and, and things like that. You know, where should we be prioritizing? What should we be putting most of our funding into? How should we be reaching out to people? How should we be fundraising? You know, the kind of candidates we should be running, that kind of stuff. And um, basically what happened, uh, the Mises caucus, uh, did a total takeover of the party at the national level They had been taking over the major the vast majority of state affiliates the state parties uh, but then at the national convention uh, back in uh, the end of May in Reno uh, they came in and had 70 percent of the delegates roughly 70 percent 65 to 70 percent of the delegates uh, every single member of leadership in the National party is now either a member of the Mises caucus or was endorsed by the Mises Caucus. Uh, so it is a full slate takeover. Uh, they completely changed, uh, they, made, they made any changes they wanted to make, which weren't a lot of them, but there were a few. Any changes they wanted to make to the bylaws, the platforms, any of that stuff they did at the convention. I was actually, uh, this. I just uh, last night returned from D.C. Uh, where, uh, the, um, where the Libertarian Party leadership met for the first time since Reno uh, to continue doing their ongoing work. Uh, and they they made a bunch of sweeping changes there as well, um, and so you know it, it basically the the Mises Caucus. I actually said in my in my speech at an event they had uh, on uh, Saturday night, I said, "You're no longer the Mises Caucus. You're the Libertarian Party. You have so thoroughly taken over the party that you aren't even a faction anymore. You are the party. You are the leadership of the party, and uh, and you know I hope that the the factional fight." gives way to you now you're in charge and now it's, it's your time to to shine. And I am hopeful to see what happens. I I will say this, full disclosure. Uh, I joined the Mises caucus the day after it was founded, uh, back in uh, August of uh, 2017. So I am not a, a totally impartial observer. Uh, also full disclosure. I did have some disagreements with the Mises caucus strategy of how they were, you know, um, how they were mostly how they were messaging the takeover. Uh, it often sounded like a hostile takeover, and a, a lot of people that I think would have been their allies uh, w- ended up becoming their opponents because it felt like an invasion more so than a than new blood. And um and but uh, that's all over. Like they've now taken over, and so here we are. Um. So I, I, I've kind of I, I can't say I've been in the middle because I'm literally one of the most prominent members of the Mises Caucus. But I have certainly had my disagreements. But th- they're now in charge. Uh, I will also say this. The Mises caucus, the fact that the Mises caucus took over is a symptom of both the discontent within the party that people were ready for such a stark new direction for the party. It was also symptomatic of the fact that the party is so small that a caucus of a few thousand people was able to completely take it over state affiliate by state affiliate. And then at the national level, I was at some state conventions where the Mises caucus was able to take over that party with less than 30 people. If someone else had come with 31 people, they would have taken over. That's how small the party is. And I'm, I'm like I said, I'm hopeful and look forward to seeing uh, everything that they plan to do. Uh, I want them to do well, not because I'm a Mises caucus member, but because I'm a libertarian and I want the libertarian party to do well. And they're the ones in charge of it. And so I, uh, I will do everything I can to help grow the Liberty movement. Uh, you, I will say You Are the Power is a nonpartisan organization. We work with Republicans, Democrats, Libertarians. Uh, in fact, the majority of people we work with on a day-to-day basis are people that aren't even really politically affiliated one way or another. They may be registered as something, but they aren't you know, party stalwarts or anything like that. And uh, we work with anyone to pass liberty-friendly goals. So libertarian from a philosophical standpoint. Uh, but that includes the Libertarian Party. We're happy to, to work with anyone that's working to push libertarian uh, values and and solutions forward. As an individual who is a member of the Libertarian Party, I want them to do well. I want the Libertarian Party to be the party. I want liberty to be the party. I want the culture of liberty to be the predominant culture in this country Uh, because no matter what happens in the future, we need more people who believe that more freedom and less coercion and government control is the best way forward. It's very difficult to quantify
1: the success of what is the, the largest third party in the country, okay? In 2016, yep. of course, four years before you and uh, Dr. Joe Jorgensen were the ticket for the Libertarian Party. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, Gary Johnson and Bill Weld were, were the ticket, and they got enough votes. Did I forget exactly what they earned? But what some type of, I don't know about permanent, but some ballot access that is was substantial. So in some ways, you could make an argument yep. that the previous... National Libertarian Party um, regime or whatever you want to describe it as did actually have historical success.
0: Right. So there's the, the uh, Gary and Bill got three point two something percent uh, of the vote. Joe and I got one point something like one point three, one point four, something like that. Um, and interestingly enough, I just found this out um, earlier this year we actually got a much higher percentage of the third party vote, people that didn't vote Republican or Democrat than Gary and Bill got. So Gary and Bill got something like 50 something, let's say it was like 56 or 55, 57%, uh, somewhere in the mid to high 50 percentile range of those who didn't vote Republican or Democrat. Joe and I got nearly 67%, it's like 66 something percent. Uh, so we got a, a a larger percentage of a much smaller pool of people who weren't voting either For Trump or Biden or Republican or Democrat. Here's what the problem is. And I've, you mentioned the PBD podcast. I've been outspoken about the things that I said that I think that Joe and her team did wrong. I did everything I could as the the VP candidate, but when you're the running mate, it's not a 50 50 thing. I, you know, people are barely even paying attention to uh, the VP candidate for the most part, especially in a third party, it was, you know, Joe Jorgensen and, 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 her that people were prime that were even paying attention to third party candidates. That's who they were primarily focused on. I have talked about my, my, uh, you know, concerns about what could have been done better. I tried talking about them during the campaign. Uh, my ideas were, uh, patently not welcome. Uh, but, uh, here's what I will say. Even if Joe had been the perfect ideal candidate, who had hit on, you know, on every major issue the way that she needed to and strategized well and everything else. I'm not convinced she could have still gotten as many votes as Gary and Bill got. And here's why after 2016, the media was convinced even though there really wasn't any, uh, any evidence of this, the media was convinced that the reason that or a big part of the reason why Donald Trump won was that Gary Johnson took votes from Hillary Clinton. There's not any evidence showing that, but just to be safe, they decided to pretend that third parties didn't exist at all in 2020. And because at the national level, we are still almost or have been almost completely reliant on national corporate media to get our message out there. It wasn't getting out there. They weren't even I think there were two or three times during the entire campaign that Joe Jorgensen's name was mentioned even briefly. And one of them was when they were making fun of the fact that she got bitten by a bat. And it actually, it actually helped our polling numbers because people actually they were like, oh, someone else is running. That's great to know. And some people thought it was pretty badass that a 60 year old lady would get bitten by a bat and immediately get on a plane to go to her, her campaign event. But the point is they barely pay. They, they didn't pay attention to us. They didn't include us in polling, which is what's required for us to even be able to be on the debate stages to register on the, on the, on the polls. They didn't include us in polls, uh, and they did include Gary and Bill. So a lot of it is symptomatic again of the problem. Our party is so small. Our movement is so small that we are completely reliant on national corporate media to, or have been reliant on national corporate media to get our campaign and our message out there. And if they decide not to do, not to pay attention to us, we don't get any attention. A big part of why I'm doing what I'm doing with you or the power is because at the local level where we can start reaching people right now, we need to grow a grassroots army of people who only want freedom and who know that Liberty can win is winning. And that when it wins, they win too. It's not just their team winning team red wins and they still get screwed or team blue wins and they still get screwed. But when team Liberty wins, they win too. And that's, that's the work that I'm doing because it doesn't, at least for 2024, I'm not positive that we, I I think it would be an absolute miracle for a libertarian or really anyone who's not a Republican or Democrat to win the white house. I think it's pretty much a miracle for them to even get on the debate stage. I think it's possible for them to get double digits, but probably close to a miracle for that. They could possibly get 5%, but we need to grow way more than that. We need to have a culture of liberty that is so pervasive that not only are people behind our candidates behind libertarian candidates the most, but even more importantly, it doesn't even matter if our candidate wins because unlike right now where the status quo is statism and wanting more government control. So no matter who wins, we just get more government control. I want the culture to be so pervasive that no matter who wins, we get less government control because that's what everyone wants. So that's where my work is. And I, I, I think that, um, What happened between 2016 and 2020 was proof positive that the strategy of hoping that the national media will cover us is a failed dead strategy. And I hope it's dead and buried now.
1: Spike, I should ask, are you doing okay on time? I I, I can. uh, How many questions you got? I got two, two more questions should be pretty quick. I'll I'll keep going. Yeah, we can can do it. So overall, the Patrick Patrick Bet David podcast, once again, um, had you, Dave Smith, Larry Sharp, and a couple other people. Sorry, I forget the other, the other couple people on there. Mm. Overall, I was impressed. I thought it was a great episode. I loved it.
0: What are your thoughts in hindsight on that podcast episode? I thought it was great. I think I, you know, I, I, I like Pat. I think he did a great job. I wonder if he thought it was going to be more of a debate if he thought, you know, I would be defending certain things and, mm. and Dave or Larry would be again. And it ended up being, well, you saw it, like yeah. it ended up just being the three of us agreeing with each other and, uh, and, you know, kind of uh, chirping over each other to say how, how much the last person was right. And then adding to whatever they said. Um, I think that uh, I, I think it was exactly what was needed, especially after the Joe Jorgensen interview. So he, the the pre, I don't know if it was the, I think there were a couple episodes in between, but earlier on, maybe like a few weeks before, Mm -hmm. a couple weeks before he had had Joe Jorgensen on and he was so ill impressed with that, or he was actually so negatively impressed with that interview uh, that he realized he didn't feel like libertarianism and the libertarian party had gotten a fair shake. And so he reached out to his, you know, Twitter and and social media following and said, who should I have on the show? And I, I think the top four, people that were recommended were me, uh, Larry, uh, I have to be careful when I say their names together that I don't call them Larry David. Uh, I almost did it again. Uh, me, Larry, Dave, and, uh, Jessica Vaughn was the other person. And so, uh, and so he had us on and it was as a result of that to just make sure that his audience was getting a fair shake on what libertarianism was because he did not feel that they got it with when Joe was on. Um, and so, yeah, I, I was, it was, that was a, a really good opportunity for us to talk about everything from foreign policy to immigration, to monetary policy trade. Uh, we, it was a, 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 a what two plus hour, uh, segment two two plus hour show. And, uh, and we delved into all sorts of things. I think it was a massive, you know, I, I call it a gold pill. Anytime there's this really great m- moment of just being able to reach a bunch of people with like a really good Liberty message uh, I call it a gold pill and I think it was a huge gold pill. I think it was even a huge gold pill for Pat. I mean, I think, I don't know if we changed his mind on anything, but he certainly was uh, a few things that he, he certainly didn't like it when Joe said it, he liked it when, you know, me and and Larry and Jessica and and Dave were talking about it.
1: Oh yeah. I, I watched the entire Joe Jorgensen episode with, uh, Patrick Bet David. And actually I think I watched it twice just to, you know, be pretty informed on it. And then the same thing for your yeah, yeah. your episode. And I would say it was like night and day. I mean, Patrick Bet David, a very matter-of-fact type of guy. He was straightforward with, with Joe Jorgensen and he, was, he yeah. was asking her some questions and he was like, So you mean to tell me you have not you have not ever debated? You know, I mean yeah. he was he was not did not seem to be impressed there, but it, it did seem like he was very impressed
0: with, uh, no, he's, with you guys. And he's a, he's a no nonsense guy. I wouldn't say he was, he wasn't mean to Joe by any stretch. Like he, I think he gave her as fair a shake as he could, but he also, he's not a no, non, he's, he's a no nonsense guy. If you're trying to get something by or try to change the subject, he'll say, no, we're talking about this or, and, and I think that, uh, you know, he, it was kind of a hot seat for, her. and, I will say this, you know, as someone who, uh, Joe Jorgensen was not my pick for the nomination. Um, and I'm not sure she would have even been my second or or third pick. She was everyone's second, third or fourth pick. That's how she got the nomination. When other people that were more prominent, like Justin Amash and others either decided not to run or they, they dropped out. Justin was very briefly in the race and decided not to run. Um, she kind of became the consensus candidate because she hadn't done unlike a, a few of the other uh, presidential candidates who also seemed promising, she didn't do anything that seemed embarrassing or anything that seemed out of the ordinary or concerning. She was just kind of, I think, a safe choice. And the problem with picking a safe choice is we didn't see what would happen if she was on a hot seat for two hours with someone that wasn't going to give her any any, any let up. Um, and meanwhile, during the campaign, it didn't come up a lot because the media just ignored her. I mean, she was on a few podcasts and stuff, but, uh, a few, she was on like Dave Rubin and a few things like that, but she wasn't on anything very prominent. Uh, I'd say the most prominent thing she was on, on, on the corporate level was on uh, either Kennedy or, or Neil Cavuto or something like that. And those were very brief moments. Um, I think in retrospect, uh, it just speaks to the fact that, uh, we need to have a candidate that demonstrates that they can be in that hot seat and perform well. Uh, there's many other things that, that we learned as well that I are, are kind of granular and I'm not sure it's worth getting into on on the show fundraising uh, ability and things like that but I think a big one from this standpoint of what we're talking about with messaging we need someone that's going to be an absolute warrior out there um, and we have warriors um, so we, we we don't have a lack of that uh, we need someone that's a warrior we need someone that has a proven ability to do to actually you know grow and, and run organizations and, and efforts because Frankly, campaigning is not just messaging. It's also like actually running things. You, you have a campaign manager, but you the buck stops with you. It's your name. Um, so they need to have that kind of ability. Uh, we have people that can do that. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing what that's going to shape up like.
1: Before we move on from the 2020 election, which I'm sure you have discussed Quite a bit in the past. I will ask one last question about that. <laughs> sure. Of course, Dinesh D'Souza. Some consider him a right-wing conspiracy theorist, whatever you want to call him. His uh, uh, film or documentary, whatever you want to call it, uh 2000 Mules." I have not watched it, but I have mm-hmm. heard. I've been told that there yep. are some. There is some evidence, or at least some claims made, that many of the votes that were supposedly stolen were stolen from hmm. yourself and, and Dr. Joe Jorgensen. Do you know anything about that? Have you heard that? Do you think there's anything to
0: that? I've never seen proof of it. I've also not watched 2,000 Mules. It's certainly possible. I will say that. And, and I, I, the easiest answer is I don't put anything beyond this government. I mean, when you think about the history of what this government has done, even just focusing it on elections here and around the, around the globe, I mean, you want to talk about disrupting elections, our government will straight up bomb a country that elected the wrong person, like the person that the u s government didn't want them to. They will sell drugs in black communities to raise funds to buy arms from the Iranian government who were we were actively in conflict with to then give to uh, a murderous uh, 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 terrorist uh, uh militias to fight against a government that uh, that they didn't like like that's that's the kind of stuff they'll do so would are are they above? stealing votes from a third party candidate to, to pull a candidate over the edge and get them to win. Yeah. I wouldn't put them above that at all. I have, I seen evidence of that. No, I haven't. That doesn't mean it doesn't exist, but it, I, I, I haven't seen it personally. Uh, I will say this. The one reason why I tend to suspect that, uh, that it wasn't, you know, that there wasn't some, some, you know, big uh, scheme to, to get Biden over the edge by you know cheating is they, they would have only done it with him because Republicans won almost everywhere else. They gained almost everywhere else. So if they're going to do all that, why not do it for others too? Hmm. Again, I'm not saying that it's, it's not, I'm not saying it is. I, I'm, I will admit it's not something I've spent a tremendous amount of time researching because even if they had taken five times our votes, we still would have been way in third place. Like even if they had taken way more, you know, not just a few votes here and there, but even if our vote count had been five times higher or three times higher, it, we still would have lost. We still would have been in third. So, and I suspect it was no, if they did take anything, it was nowhere near that. It might've been, you know, 50,000 here, a hundred thousand. It, it wouldn't have made an actual difference in, when it comes to us. So that's why I haven't spent a, a tremendous amount of time on it. Also, like I don't really trust any of these people. <laughs> like I just don't, but, um, so I don't put it above them. Uh, I certainly could see them doing it. I'm not convinced that that's what happened, but, put it this way. Here's what I do know has happened. The New York democratic party has made it so that it is effectively illegal for anyone else to run for statewide office in New York. And we see this in California. We see it in Ohio. The Republicans do it in Ohio. We see it in many different States where really only the libertarian party is able to get on that ballot. And in this last, uh, in this most recent election, Larry Sharp and the New York libertarian party, uh, and the forward party and a few others are fighting to get on. They basically all but made it illegal, uh, through the various regulations they put in place, certainly impossible to actually get on the ballot. And because the Republicans don't have a shot in hell at the statewide level, they basically made it illegal for anyone, but a Democrat to win. They're not even disputing that they're actually arguing that in court. So that's not a conspiracy that's literally happening. So yeah, like I said, I don't put anything above these people. Okay, uh, my
1: last topic I wanted to ask you about, Spike, was um, sure. as you know, political figures often jump and are very op- opportunistic when something chaotic happens, mm-hmm. such as, yeah. you know, the pandemic, for example. That was the opportunity for many power-hungry individuals and groups, mm-hmm. uh, some of them we know, some of them probably behind the scenes to uh, move forward and to take control of whatever their agenda uh, was. Yep. Uh, as we move, and I'm, I'm fingers crossed, as we move, start to move, hopefully, past uh, the pandemic, Uh, within our country for the most part. I have heard many people who fear the next hurdle on the horizon will be climate change and that the climate change narrative will be pushed so much that it will turn into a political opportunity for many. Um, You know, of course, more so uh, conspiracy theorist types on the right fear that the people on the left will be pushing it and they will use, whether it's the Green New Deal or something like that, to take more power of the the, uh, American people and, and to make the government stronger and stronger. What are your thoughts on that?
0: My thoughts are that uh, I, I agree one hundred percent that uh, the we've already heard people talk or opine about you know we could do lockdowns for climate change. Yeah, and they'd be equally ineffective, like because then people would then have to go back to work and do all the stuff that you just didn't let them do for two weeks or a month or whatever. that's that's not going to do anything. And in fact, when you destroy economies, Uh, it makes, uh, things more expensive and it gives people less income, which means that even if they reduce consumption, that consumption is often more, uh, um, uh, inefficient, which means more energy has to be used, uh, or, uh, dirtier forms of energy have to be used. Uh, so it's actually counterintuitive, like the poorest countries and, uh, the, uh, some of the poorest and, uh, and, and most backwards countries are the ones that pollute more pork per individual. So that's not really a good way of doing things. Um, I will say this. When someone asks me about climate change, I say that uh, far more uh, greenhouse gas reduction happens when a nuclear power plant is allowed to be opened than anything else that's being proposed. The Green New Deal, cap and trade, any of this uh, the climate lockdowns, any of this other nonsense, far more good is done just on climate change by simply removing the regulations that make it cost prohibitive to build new uh, and, and even, and even safer than the current ones. Uh, for those who don't know, nuclear energy is safer, cheaper, and better, uh, better for the, more environmentally friendly and completely carbon neutral, but it is safer, cheaper, and more envirom- environmentally friendly than any other grid stable form of, ele- of electricity. And it's not even close. Like it's not, it's not close. It is there. It's, it is exponentially better on all of those fronts. And that's with technologies that are decades old, because, uh, since the nuclear energy commission was created in the United States, there has so far been zero new nuclear plants that have been created because of those regulations, making it cost prohibitive to build new ones. So even with 1950, 50s and 60s nuclear technology, it is still exponentially safer than the technologies that have been coming out from other forms of energy from the 90s, 2000s, 2010s and so forth. So if you imagine what new technologies and how much safer and better the new plants would be, not only would it be better for climate change, but it would also reduce the cost of energy. It would also uh, make the grid more stable because Ah, uh, nuclear energy is the same steady level of energy for decades. They're, it's not reliant on uh, you know the the cost of fuel. It's not reliant on uh, you know environmental factors like uh, like wind and solar are. It's not and reliant on anything. It just sits there for decades, just putting out clean energy, and uh, that one thing does more for climate change than anything else. So when I start talking to people and they're talking about their concern about climate change, I say, are you an advocate for deregulating nuclear energy? And if they say anything other than an enthusiastic, yes, I tell them I'm not taking you seriously because you don't, you clearly are either ill-informed on this subject or you don't actually care because if you did actually care, you would support deregulation of nuclear. That's my take when it comes to climate change. There's so much we could be doing there. And unlike all of their other proposals, which just like their COVID proposals would do nothing but make other things worse. This actually fixes that and makes other things better, cheaper energy, um, cleaner energy, uh, safer energy. And, uh, and the kind of the, the levels of energy we need for the technological improvements to have even safer and cleaner versions of energy in the future.
1: Why the hesitancy for so many people to get behind nuclear, uh, uh, options, um, you know, is it maybe 1986? We saw, of course, Chernobyl. I watched that HBO special; it was great. Yep. Horribly yep. mismanaged, shockingly by the Soviet uh, yep. regime. <laughs> shockingly, yes. <laughs> um, but uh, yep. very fascinating. Do you think that's the the type of reason people are hesitant to accept this as a viable option?
0: Yes, I think that the majority of people, if you mention nuclear, they go, "Oh, Fukushima, Three Mile Island." uh, uh, Chernobyl. Now let's, let's break those down. Chernobyl was not a failure of that power plant. It was the Soviet government telling the operators of that plant to do things that ultimately would lead it to lockdown. There was actually a, a documentary, uh, or a a, a, a somewhat fictional account, but a pretty accurate one called Chernobyl that was done by HBO a few years back. And it pretty well documented. This was not a nuclear problem. It was a Soviet government, it was a government problem. It was government bureaucrats telling the actual nuclear engineers to do things that would end up leading to this. Now, I don't think it was intentional. I think it was just idiocy, but that was a government problem. That was not a nuclear problem. Then, uh, the other one is uh, three mile Island. That was again, a, a case of mismanagement. Uh, and three mile Island, by the way, that the, the major catastrophic fear of a total meltdown that would cause, you know, the Northeast to irradiate and all that, that didn't happen. Like that didn't happen, but that was even a mismanagement problem. Fukushima was actually a success case. So, uh, they, for whatever reason, regulators had them build a nuclear power plant on like the side of an Island, uh, right. And in, in, a, in a tsunami wake zone, and yet it's still correctly powered down. Now, I don't remember the exact details of this part, but I do remember that it was regulators that actually told the officials to do something with the plant. I wish I could remember what it was, but it was either shutting something down or something like that out of a fear of what would happen, which actually led to the release. I think it was that they wanted them to shut the plant off and open the floodgates or something like that. Um, because of their concerns of overheating, even though all the, the data was showing that that wasn't going to happen and that because they, they gave way to that, that led to like the leak of the the toxic tube. Okay. So, and don't put it on the side, like right there on like a cliff over, you know, on a, on an Island, you know, put it somewhere where it's relatively away from other things, uh, and not in an area that's prone to, you know, tsunamis, like that might be a good idea. But again, all of those were government making it worse. And, and uh, at least on two of them, it was government causing the bad thing to happen in the first place. And again, that's three of them. Think of all the times that we've heard of entire rivers and lakes being destroyed by coal ash. Uh, think of all the things we, we're starting to hear about these, uh, these uh, mini um, earthquakes that are happening in areas that have fracking. And I, I know there's some dispute as to what's causing that. Every form of massive grid stable energy production has its downsides. But if you look at the number of people killed per, you know, amount of kilowatt hours of energy produced, nuclear is exponentially safer than the rest of these things. But thanks to a lot of propaganda from this weird combination of, of, uh, you know, big fossil fuel companies and big green companies and the, and the green lobby, uh, they've kind of successfully, uh, gotten, uh, you know, a, a lot of people to be scared of nuclear. And yet a lot of these people, rely on nuclear energy and may not even know it. And and the plant they're relying on is older than them. And it's never had a single problem or even a hiccup. Uh, so no, it is a, it is, it is not even, it is, I want to say immeasurably safer, but it actually is measurable. It is tens. And in some cases, hundreds of times safer uh, than these other forms of energy. And again, it's completely carbon neutral. Um, and, uh, because it provides so much, uh, and such cheap energy, you could actually, Take other as you you put more on the grid, you could take down less uh, uh, carbon neutral and and more expensive forms of energy uh, off the grid and actually reduce carbon emissions through that.
1: Well, Spike, great stuff as always. Really appreciate uh, you. Great answer there for the question about climate change. Before we wrap things up. Uh, once again your website is spikecohen.com you also have mm-hmm. youarethepower.net it looks like you'll be speaking yep. for the at the the big event coming up this i think it's this saturday in orlando for young americans for liberty i think there's quite the yep. the star-studded cast of people who will be speaking at that event right
0: yep yep i will be in Yale with uh, pretty much every major all-star uh, at the uh, in the liberty movement at least in the states uh, we've and even some other countries uh, young Americans for Liberty. Uh, unfortunately it is sold out. Uh, so I can't even tell you to go and get tickets, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I will be there at Yale in Orlando. I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, at revolution 22. Um, and then, uh, in October I'll be back in Florida for the students for Liberty event, LibertyCon. tickets are still available for that. If you go to libertycon.com. uh, you can get tickets today. Uh, and come join me in Miami and, uh, yeah, man, we're just out here blowing it up, working with, uh, with uh, liberty lovers all over the country. And yes, uh, if anyone wants to get involved with the, the grassroots movement that we're building to liberate our where we live, our communities, our neighborhoods, one neighborhood at a time, one issue at a time, and grow the liberty movement from the grassroots up, come join us at youarethepower.net. Great
1: stuff, as always, from Spike. Spike, I really appreciate your time. I look forward to speaking with you again sometime soon. Thank you. Thank you, man. I want to thank everyone for tuning into The Kelly Patrick Show. Of course, we will have another episode
0: out soon.